Africa State of Mind with Lee Kasumba. Get it on iTunes now. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably noticed how I tried to give an interesting introduction for each of my guests. This time around, as I read through some of the work that he had done, listened to his TED Talk and stalked his tweets, the only image that came to my mind was this. The end of a very dramatic episode of The Fixer, where Olivia Pope's gladiators all head home or wherever it is that they go because we all know that they're not really normal people. And she... Miss Olivia Pope heads back to her luxury apartment, opens a bottle of wine and pours it into a huge glass and just unwinds. And as viewers, we get to see what it is that she really thinks about the case that she's handling. A little dramatic, perhaps, but bear in mind that my, be- that my guest, Ronak Kopaldas, has the intel on Africa, not just from the, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. An African political economist who has done it all from assessing succession politics in Ghana to riding in the back of a Ghanaian tax to revolutions in Egypt and studying election outcomes in Nigeria, being emergency evacuated from the Congo River and dancing up a storm in an Angolan nightclub to, to analyzing the economic effects of Ebola in West Africa and, of course, meeting various African heads of state and top bankers alike. Welcome to Africa State of Mind. Thank you very much. That's a very kind introduction. I really thought about that and I was like, how can I, who can I compare him with? And I thought, <laughs> Olivia Pope. Because you sound almost like your job is to be like the fixer or the, you know, like everything that you do is about foreseeing trends and, and predicting the future pretty much. Yeah, like a corporate sangoma. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a good way of putting it together. <laughs> now, before we get on to the serious stuff, I just want to know, because I'm probably going to be really jealous, who's the last high-profile person that you called off your phone? <laughs> you don't have to share uh, the number or email or... Uh, I can't... Probably not someone I called, but the last high-profile person I met, mm-hmm. I was in New Delhi a couple of weeks ago, and mm-hmm. I saw... Um, Hamid Karzai and Benjamin oh, Netanyahu wow. speaking at a geopolitics conference. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about, um, first of all, your, your passion and your love for Africa, you know, mm-hmm. and just how you really got into that. Because although, you know, we're all Africans, not everybody seems to share the exact passion that you have and the drive to kind of change the narrative around mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I've always been interested in current affairs and news and that kind of thing. I mean, ever since I was a kid, uh, mm-hmm. my dad used to bring the newspaper home and we used to have a chat every evening about, about what I'd read. Um, you know, we'd go through the Atlas together and, and mm-hmm. go through capital cities and, and, uh, who the heads of states were in, in various countries. And Africa was always, you know, neglected and, um, and underrepresented, upper, underrepresented in in all of these discussions. Mm. Um, then I went on to university uh, and I studied politics, philosophy, and economics. Uh, and when I was there, you know, I read this book, the, the State of Africa, by Martin Meredith. Oh yes, which was uh, a really brilliant book, fascinating, yes. and that just really piqued my my interest because it gave you the, the kind of history of the continent, a kind of pre-colonialism, during colonialism, and what's happened since then. Mm. Um, and, you know, the thing with, with Africa, you know, I never wanted to be a China analyst because everybody's doing it. Yes. Europe's a bit boring. Uh, you know, everybody's covering the States. But Africa was, you know, the narrative was always around disease, destruction, civil war. Mm. Uh, and it's not like that. And mm. you, you've just got to open your mind to to understanding the the issues with a bit of depth, with a bit of nuance, and and seeing it for yourself. Mm. So I was always interested uh, in in doing that. 
Yeah. And now just also, um, you know, before we get onto the kind of the main points that we want to get into, because I really want to give people a, a background and understanding into some of the work that you have mm-hmm. done. So you work with a lot of um, companies um, when they try to expand into the rest of um, Africa. I loved your TED talk where you said about how South African companies will walk in and they'll say, we're so happy to be in Africa. <laughs> I also get that feeling where I'm like. We're in South Africa as part of Africa. Um, just talk to us about just, um, you know, what some of the biggest mistakes that, um, companies make when they try to expand into the rest of the continent, not just from South Africa, but from the rest of the world. What are some of the, the things that they don't look out for and, and, and that sort of thing? Okay, so I mean, first up, no country in Africa is the same, mm. right? So you've got to appreciate that there's complexity, there's diversity, that uh, you've got to have customized solutions for different countries because they've got different political histories, they've got different cultures, they've got different ways of doing business. So that's the first thing. You, you need to start with a blank state and you need to do your homework. Um, the problem with South African firms in general is that they tend to say, this is what worked in South Africa, let's mm. superimpose this blueprint uh and because this is the right way to do it. Yeah. But, you know, consumer trends, behaviors, all of these thing, things are very different mm. uh, in different countries. Mm. So I think, you know, the first lesson that I'd, I'd give is to do your homework properly. Yes. You need to understand what the political history is like. You need to understand the consumer trends. You need to research uh, a country inside out and you need to be physically present because, mm. you know, high level that business plans and yes. theoretical uh, things are, are not going to cut it when, when you're dealing with things on a day-to-day practical level. Mm. Okay, now let's get into some of the bigger stories that have been um, going on around the mm-hmm. world. Um, I'm going to start with probably the biggest just because I watched the State of the Union address mm-hmm. <laughs> last night, the American State of the Union address. Um, you know, obviously not too long ago when, when um, President Donald Trump, who have to say President, respect the office, <laughs> when President Donald Trump made the comment about um, African countries, uh, you know, being assholes and all mm-hmm. of that, you know, uh, what do you think that this does? And you know, with regards to the brand image of Africa, because on one hand, some people say that that's the way a lot of people actually think. That's what they actually think about Africa. On the other hand, you know, people are like, well, you can't be labeling an entire group of people in that sort of way. You know, is it an attack on leadership? Is it a, an important attack on leadership? Mm. Or is it just um, just something that we should not be hearing in, yeah. in modern day times? So let's put this in context, right? Yeah. Donald Trump has come to... To power in America on the back of an America first campaign. Mm. So the worldview that he has is a very insular one. It's mm. a very America first focused focused view. Mm. And that's going to frame his foreign policy and the way he thinks about about his engagements with, with other countries all over the world. Mm. Uh, and Africa is no different. So it was crude, yes. Mm. Uh, but you know, you've got uh, mm. President Museveni in Uganda coming out and saying he appreciates Trump's honesty yeah. and his frankness. Look, in my in my opinion, there's no way that a head of state can be making comments like that. All, yeah. But you know, beyond the outrage uh, and all of this kind of thing, let's let's try contextualize this as to what it actually means okay. for Africa. And we've just had the African Union summit now, where you know there was a bit of damage control, where Trump wrote uh, a letter to to the heads of states who are attending the African Union summit to say that, uh, you know, he, he wishes them a good summit. Um, he said he was going to be sending Rex, Rex Tillerson, who is his, uh, secretary for foreign affairs on a, on a visit to Africa and that he was deeply committed and engaged. Mm. So a bit of damage control there, but ultimately what, what is Trump's view on Africa? Uh, it's very simple. Trump is a businessman. He's all about return on investment. Mm. So if Africa can offer him something, mm. then he's going to give them something in return. Mm. And the crux of the matter is that 
his policy towards Africa is going to be one that's focused on migration and security because those are the two issues that matter to him at the moment. The most, yeah. Um, also, to put it in context, you know, we waited eight months before he filled the position of a Secretary of State for African Affairs, and that's only been done on a temporary basis now. Okay. So there's a massive policy vacuum. Um, at the moment, and to be honest, the, the policy is one of benign neglect. Mm. He simply doesn't care enough about Africa for it to be relevant in his world, mm. which, you know, is probably not a bad thing because it means he can do less damage. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, looking at the policies, let's think about how, how this works. There's potentially some threats coming through from, from the cuts to donor aid, if that happens. Mm. Um, Climate change, we know he hasn't ratified the Paris Accord and Africa with drought issues and flooding. It's one of the regions that's affected the most. Exactly. Yes. And, and we don't have, have uh, strong financial buffers. So we need, we need that relief in, mm. in terms of crisis management. Mm. Uh, a strong dollar is potentially good in terms of commodity prices, but it's also bad in terms of uh, emerging market currency weakness. Uh, and that could put financial pressures on, mm. on many African countries. But overall, you know, if I look at Trump's worldview, uh, his foreign policy and, and the things that, that guide his governance style. Um, I again would say it's, it's probably going to be a policy of benign neglect. Yeah. I mean, you know what? Cause you, when you break it down, when I've had other people, you know, when I've spoken to and engaged other people, they all have, um, you know, we all have like, we've thought through it systematically. My fear is that I don't think when he made the comments, there was any thought process to it. It was kind of just like locker room talk, like, oh, I really don't, you know, particularly care. And I think that on one hand, like, yes, you know, like my dad, for example, who is somebody who is always against the West, you know, interfering in African politics mm. is like this, you know, could be good, you know, prior to the comments being made for somebody to just pretty much neglect and ignore so we can get on with our own mm. situation. But then on the other hand, you know, it just makes it dangerous, um, you know, because for example, when you mentioned Museveni, and I know we weren't going to detail about this, but being Ugandan, I'm just like, mm. with Museveni, I'm like, he actually was calling you out, basically, if, if there was thought process behind it, because you have been in power for a very long time. You know, you being in, ele- in elected power and in inverted commons is very questionable. You know, you can't act any other way. And I feel that for him, perhaps maybe he's also looking at it from the perspective of, if I just, you know, give Trump a lot of support, President Donald Trump, sorry, a lot of support, then maybe he'll just leave me alone and he'll support me being in power so i think i think that's that's probably a a fair assessment because you know african dictators love donald trump Mm. because he no longer has the moral authority or the u.s no longer has the moral authority to criticize them so that big stick uh that was there to ensure accountability and all these all these things um is not there because the the west and america is taking a much more insular approach Mm. uh and can you imagine with what credibility trump is going to call museveni and tell him that he's behaving autocratically yeah it's just not going to fly yeah so i think uh from from that perspective uh that's why we may be seeing a lot of authoritarian creep especially in in east africa yeah let's talk about the rise of that um, just within leadership in Africa as a whole. Mm. So, I mean, in, in Uganda, you know, you, we've now got a president for life. Uh, <laughs> in, in Burundi, um, yeah. you know, the term limits were not respected. Uh, in Tanzania, uh, President John Magafuli is is clamping down on dissent and yeah. uh, and putting opposition lawmakers in jail. Mm. In Rwanda, again, this issue of the third term has come up. The constitution was amended to give yeah. uh, President Paul Kagame mm. uh, another term in office. Mm. So increasingly, you're finding 
in East Africa in particular, more more authoritarianism. Mm. Uh, the issue of third termism is something that uh, that Africa does need to reconcile. There are other countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo that are also dealing with this issue at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think um, you know that's that's definitely something to be concerned about. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we, we, we don't want to lump the whole continent together yeah. because we're seeing positive trends in West Africa. Yeah. So in West Africa, the message is loud and clear. We will not tolerate dictators. So in 2015 in Nigeria, we had a very uh, positive, With peaceful very, handover of yeah. power for the first time. Ghana has got an amazing track record. Yeah. In I terms actually of- love the Ghanaian president, the new one. I think he's, <laughs> I think he's one of the, the hopes of the continent. Yeah, he's saying all the right things, yeah. um, but you know, time will tell. <laughs> proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, and Yaya Jame, when when he refused to accept his electoral defeat, mm. ECOWAS was very firm, uh, and in. they stepped in mm. and they said, "We will remove you uh, unless you step aside." Mm. And now with George Weah as well, you know, mm. the there was a, a handover um, of power mm. from a ruling party to an opposition. It mm. went through a judicial process as well. So West Africa is de- demonstrating a lot of positive trends on that front. Mm. And then in in Southern Africa, it's all changed because we've got uh, the crocodile in in Zimbabwe, we've got the buffalo in South Africa, uh, and we've got JLo in Angola. Yeah. Uh, all reform minded, oriented, uh, and and change is the big buzzword. Mm. Um, you know, they've all pledged to clamp down on corruption. That uh, they they're going to be major changes. Mm. So we we've effectively got this three speed track in in Africa where mm. uh, you know worrying signs of authoritarianism in a lot of East Africa, mm. um, in West Africa positive democratic signs, and Southern Africa uh, a brave new world. Yes. So the political contours are very different, and I think that's very important for people who are doing business on the continent is to appreciate that the dynamics are very different, and you have to plan accordingly. Yes. And now let's just also touch a little bit on um, East Africa with everything we're talking um, offline just now with regards to what's going on in Kenya. It's mm. quite, you know, two elections, two presidents, two swearing-ins. You know, we obviously know that, you know, with Ryla, it's not legitimized. But what does this mean for Kenya as a country that for, you know, for the longest time, Kenya was seen as one of the stronger economies mm. in Africa as a powerhouse. You know, it really was seen as that. And now with this, like, what, what will this mean for the future of Kenya? Because they've actually been battered left, right and center. The cost of the elections mm. was was you know, yeah. ridiculous. And, and also when you look at everything that's been going on with Na- in Nakumat, where the shops are now empty and all of that, what do you think this means for Kenya? And with regards to there being a changing of powers, um, with regards to which countries will, will have the most influence in Africa? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, for last year, the, the election cycle just didn't end. And, mm. and we, we joked in the office that instead of keeping up with the Kardashians, <laughs> we were keeping up with the Kenyans. Yeah. And I think the urgent priority now for Kenya is just to get on with it. This is mm. an unwelcome distraction. Mm. It's a sideshow. It's a bid for Raila Odinga for relevance. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he's generated a lot of, uh, really a lot of uh, media attention with yeah. it. And the government has played into his hands by by the media blockout. But, you know, from an investor perspective, what people are looking for is clarity around the policy, right? Mm. So there was an interest rate cap that needs to be sorted out. Fiscally, mm. the country needs to consolidate. Um, and we need some, some kind of policy coherence and synergy uh, around what direction the country is heading in. Mm. Uh, the country, in my mind, is still, you know, as the regional dynamo in East Africa, yeah. a very sophisticated economy, very tech savvy. It's got all the fundamentals to really kick on mm. um, but you know the it needs to draw under a, a, draw a line under this political cycle mm. um, and and ensure that that there there's there's some kind of clarity 
uh, around the direction that it's heading. Okay. And now just talking about elections and succession, um, you know, in general, mm. uh, you, you touched a little bit on, uh, touched on a little bit about the third term, you, you know, like pattern that we're seeing a mm. lot around Africa. So I wanted to know if you could just let us know. Let's look at, first of all, in Zimbabwe, obviously there are going to be elections, which everybody apparently, according to the new president, um, it will happen before July. Mm. You know, so there's this whole talk about the elections. Are they going to be free and fair? What do you think we can expect from from that perspective in, Zim- in Zimbabwe? I know I'm asking you to kind of, f- you know, foretell the future, but um, what do you think we can expect? Because on one hand, um, although he's been in, in power for a very long time as VP and, you know, his track record is a bit questionable, since he stepped in, he has made a lot of, you know, important changes that kind of look like he's trying to put mm. Zimbabwe back on the right track. And this could just be, in my opinion, <laughs> to kind of get people to see that he is the right president for this new quote-unquote yeah. Zimbabwe, you know, but what do you think is going to happen? So my view fundamentally is that Emerson Munangagwa is is a pragmatist. Mm. So okay. you look at, you know, he's come back from Davos now, he's been on a charm offensive. Mm. Uh, the whole world is excited about, uh, him, about yeah. Zimbabwe. Um, and I think, you know, the ZANU-PF have been very clever in the way that they've dealt with, with this issue in the sense that they've ring-fenced all the problems of Zimbabwe to Robert and Grace Mugabe. Mm. Uh, and they've, they've attempted to make a clean break in, mm. in the voter, yeah. in the voters' minds. Um, now that is, Obviously, a very superficial way of dealing with things, but it may work in in terms of public opinion. Uh, and uh, President Mnangagwa seems to be popular, mm. so I think a ZANU PF government with him as the president is is all but a shoo in. Mm. Um, you know, the problem with with the manner in which he came to power uh, is that despite it being a bloodless. Whenever the military get in, involved, it's still it's, it's still a very dangerous yes. precedent. Yes. Uh, and and Egypt is a is a prime example. Yeah. You know they had this wonderful democratic revolution. They had a civilian government, and uh, a year after the civilian mm. government, uh, it was overthrown in a military coup. And they've arguably got a more repressive uh, regime yes. in in place now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think um, you know how. Munangagwa stitches together the various ideological components between being business friendly, between giving the military what they want and appeasing those various factions within ZANU-PF mm. is going to be a very uh, tricky balancing act. Mm. But I think because the base is so low that that any marginal shifts in the right direction mm. are going to be hugely positive and have a catalytic effect on, on Zimbabwe. And now let's look at um, other elections that have happened in the last few months around the continent. So obviously in, in Liberia with George Weah stepping in, mm. um, you know, I think for me, like when I analyze it, I think as a, as a person, he seems like a great person, you know, but we are seeing that and obviously he's done a lot with regards to helping his country. But politically, do you think he has the kind of the know-how to lead Liberia? And also, I almost to a degree feel like there's so much pressure put on him, like he's going to make changes. And this is mm. the country that has been through a lot. Mm. It's been through a lot. And a vast you know, majority of the people are, you know, are, are not educated. And you know, they're still trying to get out of yeah. a lot of what they've been through, from Charles Taylor to all the rest. Yeah. What, for him, he's he stepped into the best of times and the worst of times. The best of times because everybody's excited, and the worst of times because it's the worst of times mm. in Liberia. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, he's not a messiah. And yeah. this is the thing that people need to, to realize. Uh, and we have the same issue in South Africa. People think yeah. Cyril Ramaphosa gonna is going to fix everything. Like, going to get a magic ooh. wand and, and wave it around and suddenly uh, all our problems are going to go away. Yeah. But what they've both done really well is that they're, they're playing the sentiment card really well. So George Weah slashed the salary by 25%. Oh, wow. Okay. Huge positive in the sense that it creates goodwill. Mm. Uh, and because he's going, he's dealing with a very complex country uh, and he's got to get uh, build unity and consensus and the likes um, the sentiment is very important in terms of rolling the goodwill until he delivers more meaningful reform mm. like you said Liberia has been through a lot civil war mm. Ebola uh, it's a very very poor country so it's it's going to be an uphill task mm. um, but you know he does seem seem committed to the task and uh and hopefully he he will be able to deliver on some of the the, the key the key issues infrastructure yeah. education and the likes. Mm. Now also let's also take a look at um, you know because you mentioned Egypt and I remember I only asked that because I watched that entire the revolution happen on TV. I think I sat at Al Jazeera and I was like watching the whole thing. I was like, is he going? Is he not going? Mm. What's going on? You know, it was kind of like a reality show for me, yeah. <laughs> like the news cycles on 24 seven. And now, as you mentioned, Egypt um, is obviously in a situation where things are not as good as what they were when the previous president was there. And like in Libya, we have the same situation where there were these big revolutions and now suddenly the people have kind of mm. been left to deal with what they've been left to deal with. So in a, in a way they've been, these countries are almost forgotten. You know, they're all part of the news cycle when the revolution happens and after it's like, okay, the, the, the guys are gone, the bad guys are gone, let's keep it moving. Yeah. But the people are still living with very real issues and sometimes even more real and harder than when the, you know, the dictators were there. Yeah, so uh, this is the, the thing we need to bear in mind. You know, when you have these revolutions, you have a common enemy. Mm. So everybody's united, regardless mm. of their ideological leaning. So in Egypt, for example, it was the military, it was the liberals, it was the street, it was the feminists, it was the Muslim Brotherhood. They were all united uh, against against a common enemy and they mm. wanted Hosni Mubarak gone. Now, once that happens, people start to ask questions. Uh, and then yeah. it's a revolution that promises everything to everyone. And therefore, finding compromise and consensus becomes very diff mm. uh, difficult. The other thing we need to realize is that uh, this old guard of, of, of leaders have been very skilled in the way that they manage the bureaucracy. Mm. So strong military who've done their bidding, patronage networks, etc. And in, in many ways, they're the glue that holds uh, the, the whole operation together. So when they're gone, suddenly you've got a power vacuum which people can exploit. Mm. And that's what's happened in many of these countries. Mm. So the ability to really find consensus to build a social contract is, is far more difficult than, mm. than uh, being a revolution that promises everything to everyone. Mm. Um, and I think that's going to be the challenge of, of leadership on our continent. And globally, to be honest, you, we, we've got to deal with the issues of identity and inequality uh, those are More fundamental importance yes. yeah definitely and now also let's just look at what's going on you know cross over to nigeria obviously um you know president buari has the people seem to have like a love-hate relationship with him you know on one hand as you mentioned when he got into power it was like the change that they've been waiting for mm. you know because president goodlike was not the president that people wanted anymore and then since he's been in power he's had like a few, and I say a few good moments, and then there've been other things that have happened that people were like, look, the fuel crisis is back again. What's really going on? You know, or when he was out of the country for almost three months for healthcare treatment, and the question was, why are you not taking care of, you know, the, the, the entire 
healthcare system in Nigeria? Why do you need to leave mm. Nigeria in order to be treated? You know, and all of that. And now, obviously, letters have been written to him from ex-presidents and, and all the rest. And with the upcoming elections, we've seen, a, a you know, kind of new political parties come up, you know, with regards to competing against uh, the current um, president in Nigeria. What do you think is going to happen with the next Nigerian elections? Do you think that Buhari is going to be able to to serve a second term? Or do you think that, you know, people in Nigeria are just going to be like, look, we need to kind of move on? I know that that's, again, a hard... Yeah. Uh, look, the, the the situation, political situation in Nigeria is quite fluid at the moment. Mm. Uh, you know, the APC, which was the party that uh, Buhari came to power on the back yeah. of, was also a loose coalition. Yeah. Uh, and it's oh, okay. Nigerian politics is dominated by personalities. Okay. Now, the big question mark is around his health. Um, but there's no clear front runner within the APC mm, uh, who's going to replace him. Mm. Um, so the political cycle has has really started already, which is which is negative for the economy because you've now got political jockeying, you've got policy inertia, and typically in the run up to an election, uh, nothing really gets done. Mm. Um, now Buhari is a is a classic example of how he really wasted the goodwill. Mm. So he came to power; it was euphoric, Nigeria, nobody expected it. Um, and then we waited six months for a finance minister. Um, the forex policy was handled in a very, very clumsy manner. Yeah, um, it's quite ridiculous. You can't even like deal with Nigeria financially. It's quite difficult so, as a business. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, he he squandered a lot of the goodwill yeah. and create and that created anxiety amongst mm. investors. So that there was a trust deficit. Mm. Buhari's strengths were corruption and security, mm. and I think on on those fronts, there's there has been some progress, but. You know, going forward, what Nigeria needs is more coherent economic policy. They've, they've suffered for a number of years on account of the, the oil price dynamics. That's ticked up quite nicely. So they should have some relief. Mm. But the biggest issue in Nigeria for the economy is the need to diversify away from oil. Mm. Um, and that's not an overnight process that, that's going to take uh, a much longer, longer time frame. Mm. But, you know, the, the election still very early days. It's wide open at the moment. Um, the PDP, can they make a recovery? Because, you know, after they lost the last election, mm. they were in a bit of a shambles. Yeah. Uh, who is Buhari who going to go contest against? against? Yes. And then, of course, you've got the ethnic dynamic yeah. and the rotational dynamic as well mm. that you've got to contend with. Yeah. Can uh, you explain that to people who are not from Nigeria, exactly how it is that it works? So it's an unofficial rule. Yeah. Um, but effectively, the presidency should work on a rotational basis where... You know, if you're a northern Muslim, you get it for two terms and then it rotates with a southern Christ- mm. uh, Christian. Um, that was a PDP rule. It was violated when Good Luck Jonathan uh, took over from President Umaru Yaradua. Yeah. Um, and now there's going to be controversy again if Buhari is not able to run again because yeah. the, the northerners would, would, we'll would feel aggrieved yeah. that they're not getting their fair share of political yeah. power. So, look, Nigeria seems to be maturing politically to the point where it can deal with these issues without mm. erupting in, into violence. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, Nigeria is a is a volatile country. Mm. Um, you know, it, it takes one one incident to spark something. Uh, and there'll be a lot of horse trading and compromise that will need to be to be made. Mm. Um, I've still got my doubts around about around President Buhari's health. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. 
uh, how how fit he he, he is, is going continue. to be. He, he is also yeah. quite old. Um, but you know, are there any other credible candidates at this stage? You know, they're they're still in the shadows. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you know the the analogy of everybody sitting there on the side and being a ref from the side, mm. but nobody looking for a new star player. Like that's basically what's going on in general. Because mm. as you said, like you know, when you mentioned what was going on in Egypt, what happened in Egypt with everybody having one common enemy. Now, if there's no, and you just stand there and you're like point, point, point. You know what I mean? But nobody's taking the time to build. Somebody who can actually compete, you know, yeah. and st- stand against. There's, there's um, also the generational Warren. issue, right? Of so, course, you know, yes. in Africa, we've got this dynamic of About the Facebook the generation and the facelift generation. Okay. We're a, con- we're a continent of, of, of young people. The average age is under 25. Yet, you know, of the top 20 presidents, more than 10 uh, on uh, top, top 20 presidents uh, in terms of age or who've been in, in power for the longest time, more than 10 of them are from the African continent. Mm. So the the big question that people are asking is why aren't young, young Africans people. being governed by young. by young leaders? Yes. Uh, and you're seeing that in places like Europe where Emmanuel Macron, Macron yeah. who's, who's under 40, is, has emerged as a leader.